graduating top of your class, you'd put together a resume, and if you had the slightest ounce of courage and were really dedicated to your craft, you might reach out to, say, a Formula One team to see if they were hiring and to see what difference you could make on their multi-million dollar machines. If you were a really good mechanic, midway through your career, you'd see the likes of Ferrari, McLaren, and Mercedes dotting your resume as they fought over you and your skill set. That's the best analogy I can find for our podcast guest today, Dr. Jeremy Bettle. With a multi-part skill set forged at UC Santa Barbara and P3, let me list off just a few of the stops on Dr. Bettle's career so far. The Brooklyn Nets of the NBA, the Toronto Maple Leafs of the NHL, the Anaheim Ducks of the NHL. These all led to his current role as head of performance for the New York Football Club. Any mechanic for the human body is likely salivating over this resume, and it's far from over. What makes Dr. Bettle so sought after is his attention to detail. He incorporates soft skills with the same sense of priority and verve as the linear physical traits many simply observe and measure. Jeremy is the architect of performance cultures, and when you listen closely to how he explains things, you'll also understand the personal trait that underpins his success, humility. Couple that with a love of profession, and you'll soon know why I keep Jeremy on a small list of trusted advisors, and more importantly, friends. Welcome to the Human Kinesome Project, Jeremy. This is awesome, mate. We get to catch up uh, live on our podcast. Yeah, super excited to chat, Gary. As always, mate, yeah, quick funny story for you. So ironically, my wife is really, she's fallen in love with this TV show, Ted Lasso, on Apple <laughs> TV, right? Absolutely loves it. Asked me last night, she goes, hey, is Richmond FC an actual team? I had to look at her and say, no, honey, hang on a sec. Um, it's not. <laughs> I said, it's a fictional team. I said, but ironically, the characters that are portrayed in that show, outside of your American influence into soccer, which I don't think will ever happen, I said, outside of that, I said, it's a, you know, that clubhouse effect is, 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 is pretty right on. You know, it's, it's, there's so many characters and so much fun. And the reason I bring that up, mate, for our listeners, you have seen it all. I mean, let's go down through a history, your kind of cumulative history, because I know you from the NBA and yep. also the NHL. Right. You've moved now to MLS, but there was Correct. a whole battery before you hit the shores in North America. You had a whole whole series of sports you worked with. Tell us about that. Yeah, mate. So uh, it's been a really interesting journey. Um, essentially, I did my undergrad um, in the UK. So I went to Leeds Met and I'm born and raised in, uh, in Leicester. Um, worked over there, you know, actually just in the private sector, um, David Lloyd's in Leicester, um, right. did that for a year and, you know, just thought that there's got to be more to this field than this, you know, and I say it all the time, but that's back when I knew everything after I'd finished my undergrad. You know, when I was really smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, so whether it was the, the hubris of not knowing any better or, you know, whether it was just sort of a, a drive to to be able to do more, I started looking mm. outside of the UK because, you know, sports like like rugby had just turned professional. 
95. So we, there was no real jobs uh, in rugby. And then um, other areas like football, you know, maybe you had your physio and maybe there was a fitness mm. coach. And, and so there wasn't a ton of opportunity. So I decided to come to the States to do my master's and I planned on staying mm. a year. And that was 18 years ago. So yeah. um, sort of got stuck. So I went to Middle Tennessee, did my master's and PhD. Yeah. Um, and then while I was doing that, had the opportunity to link up with USA Rugby. And so sort of started my journey there with, uh, with mm. the Eagles. And we did uh, the World Cup in 2007 over in France. The Churchill Cup was still going at the time. So that was a, a great experience. Right. And then really quickly realized in through that experience that all of my athletes were going to be injured all the time right to mm. some degree you know and so it wasn't necessarily going to hold them out of anything that but they couldn't do the perfect lift that you've drawn up for them you know that right this is the one this is going to get you like where you need to be so, well yeah. i'm a 38 year old amateur rugby player i can't do that right <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, that was the start of my um, mm. strength and conditioning career where I realized I was woefully yeah. unprepared, you know. So from there, I actually linked up with one of the physios that we had working with the team and went to work for him in Santa Barbara. Mm. Uh, so he had a, a bunch of private clinics in, in Santa Barbara and spent two years really just sort of um, studying that transitional period either from surgery through return to performance or right. you know modifying a program so this guy has a sore shoulder we still yep. need him to train and so how do we modify and what exercises can he do hmm. so that that was a really really um important period in, in my career was learning that piece um and then really fortunate to have had the opportunity then as that was sort of running its course, the, the head strength coach job came up at the uh, university uh, in town, so UC Santa Barbara, mm -hmm. and was very fortunate to get that as sort of an outsider to the US sporting world. Um, so in the interim period there, I'd met our mutual friend Marcus, and yeah. um, we'd had some great chats, and I'd, I'd been in P3 and shadowed a bunch, and so he actually advocated for me pretty strongly for that role. Yeah. And so really fortunate to then take that learning from the private sector and be able to apply it en masse to mm. 500 athletes with yeah. basically just myself and my assistant. So we're, we're working sort of 16 hours a day, just applying these, these concepts and, and just learning, you know, with a bunch right. of really enthusiastic yeah. young athletes. And it's and it's an it's a critical like part of I think any athlete's journey is this algorithm from injury and if it's you know depending on where that classification is from soreness through to pain through to debilitated I can't move mm -hmm. um, that's a critical stage that I think uh, is gets underserved in many yeah. areas because of. You know, things like we talk about it quite often about, like, you get an injury and, and for some reason in North American sports medicine, we like to treat that location of the injury. But in right. return to play, there's not a lot of consideration relative to the compensation around mm -hmm. that relative to movement. And are we having 
poor motor patterns to go back to the skill or the technical activity that you know where that right. injury occurred. And that's where I think, and, and for our listeners, um, Marcus is Dr. Marcus Elliott at uh, P3. You can look up P3MD and you'll see uh, a very um, a very nondescript uh, kind of uh, understanding of what P3 do. But Marcus now runs the NBA Combine, uh, has been incredibly successful with a number of athletes. And I would say today has one of the, I'm trying to think of the right word to use here, one of the more proven methodologies mm-hmm. relative to understanding the movement signature and biomechanical movement process of, of, of an athlete. So yeah. um, to have that, to have that ability to basically get through an academic period, kind of bridge it with UC Santa Barbara, but then to have him in your backyard, holy yeah. cow! You know that's you know it's like having a you know a master chef working next door in the kitchen, right? That you're trying to yeah. learn how to cook. So yeah. yeah, so tell us a little bit more about that, mate. Let's dive into that. Um, to t- what were the things at P three that were eye openers for you? Philosophically, we really hit it off. The thing with P3 um, is that, and this is where we shared a philosophy, is that the body is just a, a, it's a big engineering project, right? Exactly. And so you, you can start to see these movements and the, the subsequent injuries as just a, a physics project. And so if right. there's dysfunctional movement at that basic biomechanical level, we can point to the spot that's likely to break under high load. Right. And so... There, there was the sort of the combination of having the better understanding of the post rehab piece, which gives you an idea mm. of what your susceptibilities to injury are, but then really, really digging into minute detail with Marcus on the individualization piece. Right. And so having that understanding of the biomechanics and, and being able to see it put in in practice at P3 on a very individual, personal level. And being able to take yeah. both of those previous experiences of group strength and conditioning, individual rehab and injury susceptibility, P3's attention to detail, and then learn how to put those three together into a system and take them to UCSB and yeah. apply that on mass to 500 athletes. That was where those three yeah. sort of fed into one another with with. P3 really, really been a massive influence in yeah. terms of how do we take these team sport athletes, break it down initially by sport, which is surprisingly uncommon, right? then by position as we got more time with the athletes and then as we got to know them better, each individual would have some sort of tweak that we'd hadn't written into his mm. program or her program right. that over time, as we got to know them better, we just got to, to learn what they could and couldn't do and what they, they needed. Yeah, no, exactly. And I had a great discussion last week with a gentleman that we'll probably get on a podcast here at some point, uh, Dr. Todd Sinet uh, from New York. And um, it was interesting. He, he said um, one sentence that really stuck with me. He said, the only thing that's random in the body is trauma. And I was like, wow, okay. When you mm. put it into that perspective and understand the patterns that emerge, you know, from injury or patterns that emerge from overuse of a specific skill and what they do quantifiably uh, for imbalance in the human body. Yeah, P3, I think, look at that and 
and understand the fundamentals around this engineering problem, as you yeah. as as you suggest. So you take that, mate, and you 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 hit it on mass um, at the collegiate level. So you've got a lot of good, um, a lot of good collagen existing at the collegiate level, right? right? So you've got yeah. these eighteen to twenty-two year olds who are resilient, right? Can go out. I remember remember us at eighteen to twenty-two in the environments we grew up with. I mean. 20 beers a night before the big match, no worries, mm-hmm. rock up, here we are, right? I remember right. that with, with right. working with Liverpool Football Club. I was like, these guys were hammered. What's going on? They're out, they've got a quarter cup final tomorrow and they just roll right. up, right? And that's the beauty of being 18 to 22. So now, you move from there. Um, what was your next step along the journey and, and taking that experience and what were your modifications like for older athletes? One of the, one of the other pieces there that, that I should have said yeah. on the, the P3 bit, and the, yeah. the post rehab bit was hmm. was also the realization that those rehab processes we could put in place before the athlete got injured, and right. so we could be doing these things that we were doing with injured athletes, with healthy athletes hmm. who presented with similar movement patterns, right? So, yeah. so that was, I think, the real power of it was was training people out of their injury susceptibility versus rehabbing them from the injury. Right. So, so that was a right. real critical piece. And, and then, so the next move uh, from UCSB P3 was actually into the NBA uh, yeah. with the Nets. And that was the first time we met. And I, I remember this, like, all of a sudden, you know, we're putting catapult monitors all throughout the NBA I think you were one of the earlier adopters. I want mm-hmm. to say, mate, this was like 2014, 15, somewhere yeah, in there. Yeah, might have been earlier than that, yeah. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, it might have been mid-2013. But I remember meeting you, and we were looking at the data for the first time, and then you took it away. You were processing a lot of information. You said to me, I'll never forget this. Hey, mate, come back. You were, you were trying to understand if valgus knee, if that collapsed during you know either jump or land, is it, a, is it really an issue for my mm-hmm. athletes and how many of them? I remember coming to a uh, Brooklyn Nets game, um, uh, actually brought my wife and daughter with me. I was sitting there and I was examining waist down on every single athlete. I didn't know what the score was. All I was doing was trying to look and quantify, is that a problem? Because I think that's one of the pathways that is problematic for a practitioner is Everyone's looking for good or bad or binary solutions to is valgus knee good or bad? And right. you know, you are you are asking that question ahead of the curve for me, but that was our first interaction. That's when I kind of thought, okay, this is someone special, someone who's got a deeper investigation going on. So getting to the NBA, so you've got you go from five hundred student athletes into the NBA, mm-hmm. man, that's a different animal. Totally different animal. Right. Yeah, you go from 500 athletes to, to 15 athletes, essentially. Mm. Um, yeah. Now, the way I wanted to approach it, and I always thought at UCSB, you should, you should be training for the job you want now, right? So yeah. don't wait to right. get to the NBA to start acting like you're in the NBA. So we tried yeah. to individualize as much as possible. So I tried to view it as basically 15 teams, right? So each mm. athlete was an individual. It wasn't that you it, it wasn't that you just had a team of basketball players, 
right? right. So we, we really tried to dig into detail on, on each athlete. What was the variability on those programs for that, those individuals? Like if you had to say there was common, because I have this question in baseball all the time, right? It's because yeah. of the rotational specificity of the skill. There's a certain amount of exercises that will be common and cross over, but there will be a yeah. high percentage that are very specified to the individual. So how did that look? How, I mean, how much of a, a day-to-day program for an athlete was individualized versus common? Yeah, that's, um, that's a really good question. So my philosophy essentially centers around doing the fundamentals really well. And so there are certain movement patterns that we need to train and we need to have an athlete be really proficient in. From there, the the specification comes in. So everybody might do some sort of triple extension exercise. And and I look more at movement patterns than exercises. But can Darren Williams do the same um, movement pattern as Brooke Lopez in terms of Hmm. do they both need to be back squatting? Probably not. Right. Right? Right. So so there's massive variation in the NBA based on body type. Um, yep. but then also the, the limiting factor for each athlete is so different and particularly mm. in the NBA, you might have a guy, um, who's very, very strong and could do with right. being a little more springy, or you might have an athlete who's incredibly springy and needs to be a little stronger, right? Because right. the issue with being able to jump 40 inches off the ground is that at some point you have to land. Right. And you're landing <laughs> exactly, there with, exactly. with 10 times your body weight. Right. So yeah. that's the moment when your, your system is going to be exposed if there, yeah. are, there are energy leaks. And so right. that was the variation was what was each athlete's limiting factor to being optimized. And then as I got to learn the, the style the coach wanted to play and how does the coach want Brooke Lopez to, to perform? Then we could tailor his training a little more based on, you know, some guys wanted him to be much, much bigger and heavier and stronger and and be really effective down low. Yeah. Whereas other coaches wanted him to be a little more mobile and and faster and more athletic. And so now we start to to train them specific for the demands we expect them to be able to perform under, um, as well as his general athleticism and injury susceptibility. And that was like one of my first interactions, just to circle back and close off the P3 discussion. That's one of my first interactions with Marcus at P3 was with the athlete James Harden. And we were looking at metrics relative to him and we were breaking it down. Marcus got to the point of saying, breaking it down, is he a hip jumper or a knee jumper? And I said, so you're looking at angle change, angular change for production of velocity, but then the risk was all relative to how he landed. Right. Yes. And what those landing points were. But it's really interesting because with Marcus, it brought up a great discussion around what we'll call first ordered metrics for an athlete. And quite often, like even the NBA league office where Marcus, I remember being in this presentation with Marcus and we were talking around um, Marcus was running the NBA combine and it got to a stage where uh, the discussion points where everyone wanted to see who jumped the highest and who ran the fastest down court. And James Harden's an all-star based upon being really poor in those two metrics. Mm-hmm. So how are you evaluating this guy and where does he fit into the picture? So, I mean, it's a great it's a great discussion for even like the things that have got to come into uh, context, like even contract length, 
resource application to that athlete? How much are you going to apply? What's the age and fundamental neurological pattern for that athlete is, and when you see an energy leak, can you modify it, right? These are all very, I think, significant questions that are asked in terms of two categories, managing risk and then optimizing performance. Yeah. And that's, that's such a huge piece that, that risk management piece. And I think, I think in the NBA, certainly we can actually go a little too far down that road and actually make them more fragile because we protect them from load and we, everything we do is around removing that load. Exactly. It's, it's, there's this process. I think load management is a buzzword and it is the Mm. most misunderstood term across North American professional sports and coming from baseball, you know, uh, pitch count became uh, load management. It's like also the rate limiting factor to adaptation. As soon as you, as soon as you're de-evolving your athletes by thinking that there's only so many bullets in the gun, there's only, you know, this is not about bullets in a chamber. For me, it's about building a bigger chamber. So you are seeing the same thing in the NBA. That's really interesting. Absolutely. And the problem is, you know, sports science is a relatively new thing in North America. And and when I say that, I'm talking more about the data side because we also forget that, at one point, strength and conditioning was a sports science, and so was sports medicine. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I yeah. think that we were relatively strong in some of those areas. Yeah. But the data side of it was very new um, coming into, right. into North American sport. And this was a piece where you could intuitively understand it, and so it, it became sports science. Like Catapult, the unbelievable job of becoming sports science in North America. Yeah. And and that was it. And so the problem was as soon as we could put a number on something, our next goal was to try and reduce it. And right. That's not how training works, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What happened to us being in, in phenomenal shape, right? Like Yeah. We we used to train really hard and be in great shape. Right. It, exactly. And and that to me is the you know, I, I try to explain this at Catapult all the time, was like, guys, this is not linear mathematics. This is not standard algebra even. This is chaos theory. If you change a variable, we've got to understand its impact. Is it, are you changing that variable for injury management or are you mm-hmm. changing it, trying to de-risk injury or are you changing it to optimize performance? So, yeah, mate, look, we could go um, we could go hours on load management yeah. uh, and uh, and and probably not change anything immediately in North American sports, but over time, I'm I'm hoping that does come around. But let's talk about the transition for you then to like you're straight out of Brooklyn into the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? So you're going yeah. into um, you're going from a wow, um, you know, 500 student athletes, multiple sports. Yep. You take those learning fundamentals, you transition those over into a high-profile team in, in, in an incredible stadium in Brooklyn, uh, working with 15 athletes and looking at the individuality of those programs. Now these guys have skates on, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a different kind of... Um, this is a different kind of athlete. Tell me about that transition, because I think I was... Right there, talking to Alex McKechnie about you when that transition was occurring, and um, yeah, how how difficult was that? How much relearning 
did that take to move from the NBA to the NHL? So much. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you go from a a sport that is very predominantly vertical into a sport that has absolutely zero vertical or linear aspect whatsoever. Not one right. thing happens going up and down. Not one thing happens going forward and backwards. Everything that happens is lateral. Exactly. So just learning the demands of the game, and, and hockey is also a very, very old school antiquated uh, sport. Very, very few people were using the catapult system. A few people mm -hmm. dip their toe in the water, but it, it was questionable whether it was actually ready for hockey at the time. Um, exactly. Yeah. So there were a number of people sort of tried it and got back out because it they they couldn't mm. sort of make it fit. And there was there was also no no precedent for the high performance model. You know, it was a, mm. still a very traditional athletic trainer physician, strength coach, led model. Um, yeah. Everything was about the grind. Everything was about grinding mm. and, you know, very little thought to what are the actual demands of hockey? How right. are we training our goalkeepers to be explosive? Right. How are we training our guys to be able to not just grind at one speed, but be explosive within that ship? It's not just... 30 to 45 seconds on and 30 to 45 seconds off. Right. It's, it, it's variable within that, you know, and, and so being able to really yep. break down those demands and then use the data that we bring in from other sports to say, here's what injury susceptibility looks like. Mm. Because it, mm. it's very much a tough guy's sport, or at least they like to present that image. Yeah. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And so you play injured, you you fight through concussions, you do all this stuff. Mm. And so yep. here's me saying, this guy's not hurt, but he might be tomorrow, so let's shut him down. Yeah. And th those were interesting conversations initially. Yeah, I'm sure they were. And it transitions us really to this concept of, of sport and team, probably more so focused on team culture, right? We hear that word used a lot. Mm. It doesn't matter. You know, championship teams will say, oh, we have a great culture. But you never hear losing teams saying our culture is bad, right? right. And common friend who was all, also in the NHL, Dr. Ben Peterson, um, I recall you know, from our time at Catapult trying to, firstly, um, we – we had a call from the uh, Philadelphia Flyers who wanted technology. And I said, guys, I don't even know if this accelerometer will work on the ice for what you're trying to measure. So I said, uh, I'll give it to you for free. You capture the data. We'll analyze the data, you know, over the next six months. I think it was halfway through a season in 2013, 14. I said, we'll have a look at it there. And, um, and I gave it to Ben, who was working with us at the time. I said, mate, break this down. I said, but break it down backwards. Let's reverse engineer from what's the what's the biggest you know injury that you were seeing in hockey at the time. And it was like there were, there were kind of two he was looking at was groin injury and low back injury, right? Mm -hmm. He was looking at those two. And I said, well, let's try to understand does asymmetry play a part in that? Let's remove you know one of the accelerometers and try to pull the data sets out and objectify motion laterally so we can see if there are imbalances and potentially that will tell us something. But that's this segues mate into a discussion around technology 
Mm-hmm. Um, you've been kind of on the front end of it's almost technological validation and then data validation from that technology. Yeah. So how do you go about that process? Like starting out, and we want to get to obviously your new role with New York Football Club and culture, but does technology and data play a part in that cultural thread? Yeah, very much so. Very, very much so. Um, and it's such a challenging piece, especially at really highly resourced clubs. Yeah. Because it can reflect your culture where you can go and buy everything. Right. Right. And but what should you buy? More importantly, you know. Right. So are you a team, and, and this is where it's reflected, are you a team who just wants new shiny toys? They got one, we need one. Yeah. And you just drop all that technology on your strength coach's desk and great, now we do sports science. <laughs> and the on the, the flip side, are we really thoughtfully trying to solve a problem? Right. So what are the issues we're trying to take on? What are the current resources we have? And then what are the gaps that need us to innovate? Mm. And then from that, are we in a culture that is interested in learning? And that, that goes from the coaching staff, the general manager, through the staff? And if so, how are we modifying our day-to-day practice based on the technology that we have gathered? Right. And, and I think that that's, for me, how culture is reflected in technology. Yeah. Either we, we buy a ton of stuff, we gather a load of data, and it does absolutely nothing, it sits on my laptop and we're just collecting it to collect it. And, and that's, that's really indicative of a culture whereby you've got certain people within the culture trying to drive some change and innovation. And you've got other aspects of the culture that are sort of rooted in, in tradition and in their own philosophy. Right. How much of that direction is driven by fear emotionally fear of loss of job fear of risk fear of innovation when you come into a team do you is is that common for the teams or is that a pre-selection criteria to where you're going do you see fear being a constant cultural issue yeah i think i think that's a big part of it i've found um a lot of times where where medical staffs are resistant to technological advances within the field, it can right. be down to avoiding the accountability that comes with. We measured at the start of this intervention, we measured at the end, and nothing changed. Yeah. yeah. It's If you are not psychologically safe within your role, if you're in a culture that doesn't allow you to make mistakes or admit mistakes and learn from them. Who wants to be the guy that says, wow, this is fantastic. My treatment did absolutely nothing. Exactly. I just wasted six months rehabbing this athlete, right? Nobody wants to be that guy. So you you can't blame people in that instance for not wanting Mm. to measure because it's, it's risky. Yeah. 
within yeah. the right context, and, and it's hard to create and it takes a lot of time. Within right. the right context, people are interested. And, right. and people will want to say, hey, does this intervention actually do what we think it does? So I'm mm. going to measure, treat, and immediately measure again, rather than wait right. for these big passages of time. And we'll say, wow, that, that actually didn't do what I thought it was going to do. Mm. And so maybe we do need to, to start looking at, at something different. We need to learn a new skill. Right. But I think it takes time to get there, mate. No, I think you're right, mate. And um, you used the term uh, psychological safety. And I think it's a, it's a, a brilliant term, um, especially for almost like cultural awareness for an organization mm-hmm. um, and especially for like a team of practitioners who you now are putting in place and and developing right to enable their psychological safety and to mm-hmm. create a an environment where that exists. Have you been in an environment where that exists? Have you created an environment where that exists? And if you've created it, what are the steps to doing something like that? Mm. Well, that's, uh, that's a tough one to answer. Um, I've definitely been in ones where, um, where it didn't exist. Mm. Yep. It's, it's really challenging. You know, the, the psychological safety piece really has to come from an overall culture, both through management and the coaching staff and right. through... The, the staff within performance, you know, so it really is a, a, a holistic thing. It's, it's fine us being able to have open and frank conversations in the back of house, which sometimes it's not possible. But then are we willing to have those same conversations if the GM walks into the room or the head coach? Right. There's a right. very, very big power dynamic there, a power imbalance. Mm. Um, and huge pressure whereby if the head coach doesn't necessarily understand that he can't blow up every time something happens or the GM mm. saying it doesn't really matter what I do it, it, it's going to very much depend on the, the general atmosphere of the club right so right I think the first thing is understanding what the culture is that you're coming into. And that this has been one of mm. my key learnings over moving between so many clubs. It is the mm. change management process. It, it's not so right. much. It's not that I have a great system that works really well because it doesn't everywhere. You have to mm. come in and assess the situation you're walking into, spend time observing, documenting the culture, seeing what's done really well already and then over time introducing your system sort of into the cracks into the gaps right. that you see within that current system but in the context of the organization so would you call that a performance audit um or does it really extend beyond that because in times historically when i've coming into a situation fresh, the first thing I try to do is audit, you know, I'll look at things like injury rates, injury history, 
um, of the individual players and I'll look at the mechanisms of those injuries and I'll look at the training methodology on the backside and you start to unpack the the functional elements of the culture to see potentially is this from mislearning not enough resources you know where where are those errors occurring um, the ones that are tougher are the is that soft skill side right is that soft Events and there was one organization I interviewed with um, two years ago that looked fantastic on the surface, but when I was in my one-on-ones um, in a in an open setting uh, with these individuals, um, they would look over both shoulders and then lean in and tell me all the negatives about the organization. Yeah, and I was like, um, they didn't want to be heard by anybody else, but you know, one-on-one they were they felt safe with me to say, oh man, don't come here. This is a quote-unquote shit show. You know, this is what, you know, this is a problem. And so to, 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 and it, and it stopped me from signing a fairly lucrative offer with that team. And it's actually been two situations for me like that, but it's been a gut feel, right? It's been a gut feel. I don't know if I'm asking the right questions or whether it is, um, is, am I in tune with this? And, And it's hard because I've walked away from the opportunity and don't know. Right, and yeah. both both those organisations have gone on uh, to have some pretty good success, and I'm happy for them. Yeah. But I just knew I wasn't going to be a part of it. So, in your audit process, is it, it does it start with the function of day to day practice, or does it really start with okay, let me get a sense emotionally of how everybody is interacting. Where do you start on that? Yeah, so that this is an area that I've I've spent a, a huge amount of time. And, and hopefully have, have evolved a lot during my career. And I, I think one of the yeah. key mistakes we can make is just to do the performance audit. And, and that's certainly what I've done in the past is you go in right. and you, you assess the functional components and the, the expertise level and why are these injuries happening? And you, you, you think, great, there's a ton of low-lying fruit here. Let's change everything. Mm. You yeah, know, I, I know exactly how to fix this. But if you fail to do that within the greater context of the organization, that's where the soft skills just run right into a brick wall. You know, yeah. I, you have to be able to assess the readiness for change of an organization, number one. If there's mm. a ton of low-lying fruit, and there hasn't been a lot of staff turnover, there's a reason it's there, yeah. right? So, okay, this is an established program. You've got, you've got a management structure and a medical staff who've been together for, for 10 plus years. Everybody's saying, hey, we need to change, we need to fix this. But what you need to understand is, is okay, well, why haven't you, what, what is it that has led to this pattern of results that are, are sort of happening mm. recurrently. And, and right. if you don't take that into effect, or sorry, if you don't take that uh, into account, you, you run in thinking you've got all the answers and the whole system gets rejected. Right. Versus actually going about a process of observing the culture, seeing where the readiness to change is and going about a structured change management process where you you bring people along with you a little more um 
And so that that's the accumulation of that experience is what I've brought here into New York. Yeah. You know, and, and it was part of my interview process, as you alluded to, on is this a situation right. I want to come into? Yeah. You know, do I want to be a part of this this club and this culture? And do I feel that they're ready for, for change? Or is this going to be a massive arm wrestle to <laughs> be able to to bring this system that people say they want, but they don't necessarily want to change how they, they act day to day? Yeah, we want we want better results with the same system. Right, we want better results with the same people in the same system, and Correct. you yeah. make that happen. And that's that's sometimes difficult, especially when you're put into a role where you are quote unquote the conductor of the orchestra. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some you're going to sing different songs now. There are some parts of that orchestra that need to be shut down, and right. you know, it's it's in in making the decision to come to New York Football Club, which I think um, a spectacular move for you personally. And um, when we were chatting prior to that transition, it just sounded like this was, you were being presented with a clean slate and um, or the opportunity to create a clean slate. What's yeah. been the biggest challenge to date for you? And, it, you know, has it been uh, coming into now football and for our listeners, European football, which is soccer, right. um, coming into this sport, what's been the biggest challenge so far? You know, this is one of the first roles I've been into where this is pure strategic and leadership. And, and so mm. it, there's not like that anchoring task that you have each day. You know, it's, right. it's not a hands-on role at all, right? And so it, it's all about leadership and, and strategy with, with the senior management of the organization, which mm. uh, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying, but it, it's... It's quite hard to come in and not have a job to do initially. When you're right. used to being very integrated with the team, very close relationship with the players, you're, you're now a, a couple of layers removed from that. And so finding new ways to be in that mix yeah. more more as a leader, then it, it's um, that's a challenge right off the bat. Mm. But then, you know, practically... I, I like to educate and bring people right, along. Right. And yep. so we have a very young team. What I've found, which is somewhat different to many of the other sports I've been in, is the language barriers can be such mm. a, a hurdle to being able to develop players. So you've probably got what? Spanish, French, Portuguese, English. Yeah. Yeah. And varying levels of English competency. Right. And, and so that, that really brings in to sort of start view your, your career arc where you you spend so long becoming very technically proficient and then you have to start looking outside of your technical proficiency to what is limiting me from applying that technical knowledge and for right. me right now if you know we've got um if we've got a young player who doesn't speak english it doesn't matter what i know because i right. can't communicate it to him Right. right, and so right. these are the parts of of your expertise now that need to start growing. You need to have right. much more self awareness now. On okay, what are my blind spots? How am I applying what I know, and and how can I best serve the player and and help to educate and bring them along? You know, and, and that that's been a massive challenge. Mate, how will you measure your success in this role? I mean, for coming in, like you said, not having that day-to-day job or that day-to-day, okay, 
like a strength coach would say, yeah, I've improved his you know back squat by five percent, and we hoping that translates to some technical ability. Um, with everything being measurable uh, in sports as it is, how do you measure your effect? Like season one to a long term kind of target and goal. How do you measure that? So I think in this iteration of the performance director role, it has to be multi-level. Um, mm. We'll be expected to produce results on the on the pitch. You know, of course. what are our injury rates? Are the guys in great shape? And we can measure all of that. These these are things that I think are going to be the the measurable number that I'll be ultimately right. judged by. How, yeah, you you'll be you might be judged by that, but how do you measure? Is that different, or do you That's look at it the same way? No, yeah, absolutely okay. not. Absolutely not. Those for me are the byproduct of the day to day processes that we undertake. Right. If we have the right systems in place, our injuries will fall. Like that. I mean, that's just how yeah. that is. If yeah. if we take out, you know, a contact trauma, we shouldn't have guys getting hurt in a non-contact situation, soft tissue right. joint otherwise. Right. So yep. for me, I judge myself on what are the processes that we have in place to systematically achieve our objectives. And how are we executing those as a multidisciplinary organization? And that, and I say organization rather than department because the head coach and the management are involved in that spectrum of injury prevention. So how are we bringing in practitioners who usually aren't a part of that process and making them a part in that and helping them understand how they contribute to some of the problems that we're facing? and how they can be a part of the solution to those problems. I think in those statements, Jeremy, you've kind of unpacked high performance as a discipline, right? And as you know, that's to me, having written uh, role delineations for high performance directors for a few different organizations now, and you know, probably wrote some of the first ones for that role in North America, um, what you outlined is exactly the way I've always approached it is look at it from a how do you conduct that orchestra of multi of multiple musicians right multidisciplinary uh professionals and how do you grow them individually that will evolve the whole overall high performance culture i think that is you know that's something that you're you best in class at mate and um i think you know your journey um, kind of like this podcast in which we are out of time. But I think your journey, it feels like we've talked for 10 minutes. Your journey feels to me like you're 10 minutes in as well. As much as you've achieved and done so far, mate, I think you're just getting off the launch pad. I think um, the future is going to be for athletes and the evolution of sport is, is going to come from individuals like you who are going to change the game, change the process, change the culture of an organization and fans will see it and it'll kind of be, wow, what's different about this club? And I think anybody behind the scenes will point back down and say, yeah, it's, it's Dr. Jeremy Bettle. <laughs> well, 
I don't know about that, but uh, hopefully I'm I'm helping along the way. But I agree. I I just I do feel like this is this is the start. It feels like it's been a long road. Yeah. But um, you just become more and more aware of of what you don't know, right? And then you chase yeah. that. And yeah. you, you keep learning these new layers to this this business, and um, I, I have no idea where it's going. You know, for me, for, I love it. You know, for the industry, but it's um, yeah, it's just such an exciting field to be in. You know, I just uh, it is loving the journey. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome, mate. Well, look, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Like I said, it felt like a ten minute chat for me. For us, I know we've got a lot more we will unpack in the ensuing weeks on various phone calls, but. Um, uh mate you're on twitter um what's your handle on twitter where can people kind of follow your um follow you through social media for for what it's worth do you get on there a lot do you do a lot there where can more people find out about you um yeah i mean i guess technically yes i'm on twitter at uh, dr jeremy battle um the occasional retweet and uh occasionally i'll put some thoughts out there but nothing much um if you want to see some pictures of my cat, you can see me on uh, <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> love yeah. it, love it. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah um, I love it. Yeah, LinkedIn. You know these the, the usual places. Yeah. I, I yeah. I'm a pretty behind the scenes guy, though. Honestly, Gary, I don't um, not out there a whole bunch. I just uh, I tend to focus in on on whatever job I'm doing at the time. Yeah, no, I get it, mate. Well, again, it's been awesome to connect today, buddy, and um, we will chat soon. Likewise, mate. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Human Kinosome Project. Our music is provided by the incredibly talented Joanna Magic. I hope you'll join our community at discord.gg slash kinetics. Team, the game has just begun.